Father, I thank you just for these declarative truths that we sung in the songs that have been written for our edification, Lord, and even for things that admonish us, God, and just align us with your truth. And pray, God, that every heart here, every mind is focused and ready for the study of your word. God, that you would just move in the hearts by your spirit, that you would cause us to understand the things that are in your word. You have made things simple for us to understand, and yet there is such great depth that we can all grow from, Lord, no matter where we are in our walk with you and in our maturity and our understanding of you, that, God, you have something there for us to take in, um, to enjoy, to better our lives by, to correct us. God, I pray that if someone here or maybe many here that do not know you, Lord, that they do not comprehend the truth, that their eyes would be open today, that their hearts would be drawn to you, God, in a saving way, that you just move by your grace upon them, and God, that you would change their lives, and that you would restore them to a right relationship with you, that they would understand that it is Christ who bought us, who paid the price for us, who took our cross to the sins, so that took our cross to the sins to the cross so that we could be forgiven and that we could have a victory of life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, and we're not quite done with chapter one yet. We probably have a couple of more Sundays there. Uh, Ray got us through all of verse 18, although we are going to pick back up with the very last part of verse 18. But in doing that, I want to as we often and always try to do, is put things into context. And so I would like to start us back at verse 12 and then read through verse 21. So Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1, and I will be starting us in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Ray taught last week from verses 15 through 18, describing Paul's unshakable spirit, that Paul would not be discouraged even then when there were others that were spreading false things about him, false accusations. And Paul's only concern was even though that they, they were speaking negatively about him, he would still rejoice because they were proclaiming Christ. So their message wasn't bad, but their motives were. People were hearing the gospel, and people were getting saved, 
And that was Paul's main thing, is that he did not care what they were saying about him so long as Christ was being proclaimed and so long as people were being saved. And Paul still knew that there were others who did love him. As we see there in verse, 15, in verse 16, the latter do it out of love. So those proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel is very solid with false motives and then those that were proclaiming it with love. They were not too afraid to speak about Paul's circumstance, understanding that he was there for a reason, even using the reason that Paul was incarcerated to further promote the gospel. They were using Paul's example for the furtherance of the kingdom, that his imprisonment was being used for that purpose. And he continues in this spirit of rejoicing, despite where he is, despite what is being said about him by those who are making these false claims about him, who are maybe coming down on him hard because, hey, Paul's in prison. You don't want this for yourself. Look at him. He's not winning. We're the winners here. We're the ones that are free, and we're actually able to go out and proclaim the gospel on the streets. But wherever the true gospel is being preached, God is active in that. He is still reaching hearts by His grace. He is still doing the saving work, no matter where it is being proclaimed, no matter the circumstance from which the gospel is issuing forth. And so Paul is joyful about that. And that's why we start with the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is putting a statement on that. And you can really see where a person's focus is where their passion is by how they respond to criticism. I kind of marvel sometimes at those that are very skilled in sports, those athletes who just excel, and one of the ways that they can excel is because they are able to tune out all the criticism, all the negative things said about them on the periphery, and they are able to focus in on the end goal. They're able to focus on the prize, and that's what makes them excel. Well, this is not a sport that we're talking about here when we think about Paul, but you can see that Paul's focus is the same. He's successful at proclaiming the gospel regardless of the situation because his end goal, his prize, his prize is Christ. His prize is the gospel and seeing others come to faith in the Lord. Paul was zeroed in on Christ, his glory, his, the advancement of kingdom, and that he was unaffected by the things that were going on around him to the degree that even the death that was possibly coming for him would not be a hindrance or a distraction from the gospel. I would think and I would hope that I would be like Paul. I know you would hope that you would be like Paul, standing firm, standing solid, regardless of what is coming towards you. You know, probably one of the reasons that we don't have a crystal ball into our future is we would try to avoid a lot of the things that are coming to us in terms of the persecution that we might have to face when we take a stand for our faith. But when we think about death in the near term coming towards us, a lot of us take measures to avoid that. We live healthy lifestyles. We, we want that death you know, to, to pro, be prolonged as long as possible. It's coming for us. But if it is for the cause of Christ, then we have to be like Paul and said, whatever may come, I am going to stand firm in his truth. I am going to preach the gospel. 
And Paul acknowledges here several key things that give him this ability to persevere and even have joy in his hardships. And I believe that this is for every Christian. So we've already passed by one of these verses in our study that Paul is looking at as something that is supportive in his ministry that is helping to uphold him and embolden him and give him courage while he is in prison and the ability to share the gospel. And one of those things is just the love that is being shown to him that is, being, uh, that is sort of hovering over him by all the believers that are aligned with him advancing the kingdom. And we find that in verse 16. One of the reasons why I wanted to back up and read a little bit uh, into what we have already studied. But verse 16, we see there that the love of other Christians is part of what motivated Paul. He says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And this was a supportive kind of love that came alongside him in the work of the gospel. And it stands out from all those who are criticizing Paul. They are loving Paul beyond his circumstance. They are loving Paul beyond his chains. So we know that this is a God kind of love, that agape love that we studied so much in the book of 1 John. It is an overcoming love. So it is going beyond what Paul is afflicted by, being in chains, being incarcerated. And it's that love that begins with loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. It's a kind of love that gives us the ability to overcome fear. It is what is helping to keep Paul going and advancing the gospel. And others are with, motivated by that love as well to advance the gospel, to serve alongside Paul, even if it meant their own imprisonment, even if it means their own death. So I believe that is one of the things that Paul is looking at as upholding him and strengthening him during this time is the love of other believers. And I think it is very important for us as believers to express love to fellow Christians. If we don't let anyone know within the body of Christ that we love them and that we support them, especially if they're being challenged in the, in the ministry, those that are on mission for the cause of Christ we need to let them know that we love them and that we support them in love and also in our prayers. That's what Paul is rejoicing about, right? He says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, this is verse 19, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So it is the love of fellow believers and it is their prayers that Paul is looking to for the strength to continue and to persevere and to do so with joy. Scripture continually reminds us of how vital prayer is to the believer. It should make up our Christian walk. We should be living a pattern and a lifestyle that is someone who is continually praying. We are commanded to pray in the Scriptures. Multiple times we read that we are to be in continual prayer. Paul writes this often, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, talks about praying continually there. We'll see it a little bit later in Philippians in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. The emphasis there is prayer. Uh, Ephesians 6, 18 through 19, I'll be sharing those verses in just a little bit. The importance of prayer in a believer's life to strengthen us, but to also pray for strength for others. And for the courage to go out to share the gospel. In Luke, Jesus says, this is Luke 18, 1. He says, he told them a parable 
to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We are commanded to pray. And we also see prayer brings our requests to Him. So why do we pray? Well, for one, we want to glorify Him. We want to bring our praises to Him, thank Him, but we also bring our requests before Him. We know that we have not because we ask not. He already knows what we're going to ask for when we pray in accordance with His will. Another thing that Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. This this does not mean that he will be granting anything that we ask like he's our genie in the bottle because we also know that his, his word tells us in 1 John 5 that we are to pray in accordance with his will. Then we know that we have the things that we have asked of him. It's praying with the mind of Christ, asking for the things that Jesus would ask and petition the Father for. But prayer is the way that we bring our request to him. And then also prayer helps us to overcome. There's something fulfilling, there's something that completes us. It's very mysterious that when we pray, it is like a healing salve to the heart of every believer. Jesus tells Peter to pray for strength in overcoming temptation in Matthew 26, 41. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Prayer helps us face and overcome all types of struggles. And Paul, knowing this, asked for the believers to intercede with him in prayer on his behalf. When Paul tells us about the equipment that we need, you know, that spiritual armor to engage in the spiritual battle that is being waged around us and that is being waged over our lives, he fastens at the end of that prayer. And sometimes we talk so much about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and uh, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. All these things that we talk about in this armor of God, but yet often what it gets left out is Paul's, the way Paul ends this. In Ephesians six seventeen through 20, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. It's almost the way in which that armor is put on is to pray for it, to pray that God would equip us with everything necessary that we need to thwart the enemy's attack. So to continue that verse 18 of Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And isn't that interesting that here at the end of Ephesians, Paul is making the same statement about coveting those prayers of the people, and Ephesians is being written out of the same circumstance that Philippians is. I think it's Philemon and Philippians, uh, Colossians, and I believe it's Ephesians. All four of those books were written, uh, chained to these Roman guards 24-7. And see the emphasis and the focus that Paul puts on prayers and his desire for the prayers of those believers to be with him and to cover him in prayer. What does he say? I'm going back to Ephesians 6, there in verse 19. Also for me, pray also for me 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth and boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. God does not turn a deaf ear to his children, and he hears them, and he acts in accordance with his will in responding to our prayers for others and in our prayers for ourselves. And Paul has and is being supported by the church in Philippi. And he commends them often because of their gifts financially to them, to him. They were one of the most giving churches financially to Paul in the support of his ministry. But we don't see Paul saying, give me your money, that's what I need more than anything. We see Paul sincerely from the heart saying, I need your prayers. I need your love, I need your prayers. And Paul does want deliverance, of course, from his chains. I mean, who wants to be you know, chained there and be living in an, a life of incarceration? But more than that, he wants the advancement of the gospel. And he knows that it is affected by prayer to the one who empowers and the one who enables. And there we kind of links us in to what the third component here is, and that is looking to the Holy Spirit that indwells him to strengthen him, to give him the boldness that he needs to share the gospel. Paul acknowledges here the Holy Spirit. You can go back there with me, um, closing out verse 19 here. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The love of the people, the prayers of the people, and then The bookend here is the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit of God in him, Paul would not have the ability to look upon his circumstance in this way. There would be no spiritual endurance. He might be able to get by for a little while with a few cups of coffee and a good meal, but that is going to come to an end. Physical means of sustaining ourselves and giving us strength is is going to come to an end once we've burned it all out. But the Holy Spirit in a believer's life can never be extinguished. Now there are ways that we can suppress the Spirit. You know, as Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine, but whether be filled by the Holy Spirit. Those are things that we can do to somewhat suppress the Spirit's work in our lives. But here, once we become a believer, we are indwelt with the power of God by the presence of His Holy Spirit. We are enjoined with the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have His power within us. And that is what Paul is looking at. Beyond the circumstance, he is looking at the power that he has within him. Paul would not be even writing this letter without the Spirit. We know the Spirit inspiring all of Scripture, including Paul's writing of his letter to the church in Philippi. We see the promise from Jesus of the Holy Spirit come to the life of the believer. In John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of that, another helper, his Spirit, and that helper is the one who comes and enables and empowers and teaches and gives us strength and courage. In John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. It was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross to be the atonement for our sins so when we put our faith and trust in Him and we are saved by God and regenerated by Him, He seals us by the Holy Spirit from within. 
Later on in that same chapter, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So it was necessary for Jesus to go so that the indwellment of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer could come and indwell and make possible our Christian life to live it in victory, to live it in overcoming circumstances and advancing the gospel. In salvation, God makes us his temple, and as he dwells there in the third person of the Godhead, he gives us strength and power to continue, even though through the world's eyes, it might not look like we're prospering very much, but as the gospel is being advanced through you, you're prospering. You are prospering in the Lord. Fellow believers, loving Paul unconditionally, looking beyond his circumstance, loving him regardless interceding for him in prayer, and then finally the Holy Spirit, strengthening, emboldening him, and giving him an overcoming joy of seeing the gospel further. And yes, I will rejoice, is what Paul is saying about this. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So when Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance, the word this gives us that question to what is he referring to. If he's looking back at something and he's saying this, is he taking an account of his current imprisonment, his accusers, um, his troubles? The NIV translates it this way, that what has happened to me, which seems to draw from this mixed preaching that was going on. It was solid gospel message, but some of them were doing it with the wrong intent of you know, making accusations about Paul and, and uh, almost insulting him trying to elevate themselves above him. Is it that that he's talking about? Uh, one commentator, Vus, says, the word this refers to the fact that Christ is being more widely announced as a result of Paul's imprisonment. So it could be a, a combination of all of these things. We're not told exactly what Paul's referring to when he says this, but when we look at the context, we can see, well, it might be his imprisonment, it might be the things that are being said about him, even by those preachers that are, are going out and preaching the gospel. But whatever it is, this, he says, will turn out for my deliverance. Now, commentary is divided on what Paul's referring to when he speaks of his deliverance. If you look at the Greek word for deliverance, it is soteria. And Soteria literally can mean deliverance, but it can also be the word for salvation. And it can also be translated as one's well-being, and it can be translated as escape. So the way the ESV translator have chosen it to translate it in the, what I read from, it is soteria in the form of deliverance. So the word could be deliverance, it could be well-being, it could be escape, it could be salvation. So is Paul speaking of his final salvation, meaning entering into glory to be with Christ, or is he talking about his physical deliverance here, which is still something that commentators are somewhat divided about. And some hold that Paul is being intentionally ambiguous here. That the reason that he's not pinpointing exactly what he's talking about when he is using this word deliverance is that he is intending for us to look at this and maybe look at it as an amalgam of, of everything 
uh, of deliverance, both physically and deliverance in the spiritual sense. Is it physical or is it final? You know, maybe that's not for us to question. And I don't think that we would be far off to say that all of those things can be grounded in truth. Paul has a good understanding of his situation here. And he understands that whatever may come, that it is only temporary. God has him here for a moment. And there is going to be a deliverance of some sort. But what might that deliverance be, Paul does not know. As I had mentioned earlier that we do not have a crystal ball into our future. Paul is not being told by the Lord directly what it is that he's going to be delivered from, which is potentially a, an issue, a, a reason why Paul is being ambiguous. All that he has been going through, all the insults, all the lies, all the beatings, is not going to last. Paul understands this will all come to a conclusion, and perhaps that is in the very near future, or maybe it is in the far future. He places his life in the omniscient hands of an almighty God. Paul is not omniscient. We are not omniscient. We don't know everything that is going to come. Just knowing that every moment that we live in right now is just a temporary moment, and God is working all things together for good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. And those all things... There are moments along the way towards his ultimate purpose for him. Those things are temporary. They are going to pass, and Paul understood this. He understood that the future holds his deliverance. Whether that was going to be vindication, whether that was going to be a physical release from prison, or if that was going to mean his execution, and finally he inherits heaven and he will be delivered to his Lord, Paul is saying this is all temporary. Whatever may come, will come. It's interesting, as I began to study this, I didn't realize that there were some parallels and even some exact quotes that Paul uses in the book of Job. Some, some of us will sometimes avoid the book of Job because we think when we read Job, then we're going to experience some of the trials that Job was going through. But Paul is using Job's experience and likening that to his own, the things that he is going through. If you look at... Um, this phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, what Paul is telling us here, that is an exact quote, word for word, of what Job writes in 13.16 of Job. And when you compare your translations, you may say, okay, well, that, that looks a little bit different because the translators may have translated it different. But if you go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Job, the Septuagint is Greek word for word, what in 13:16 of Job what Paul is writing here when he says this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul was looks like maybe he was studying the book of Job while he was in incarceration and he was using the the experiences of Job to strengthen himself to understand that you know Job was going through this not because he was being punished by God but it was all part of God's sovereign plan taking him through these circumstances and that it would work out for good whether he was released from prison, whether he was vindicated at his, at his trial, or whether he was delivered over to execution and passed on to glory as a martyr for death to a believer. That is the ultimate and most glorious deliverance, and Paul looks forward to that. And we'll see that in verse 21, but we're not quite there yet. But either way, Paul wants the Philippians to know that even if his expected deliverance 
from prison fails to materialize, even if he is executed, he will still be saved to eternal life by God. And he goes on to say in verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is looking ahead at something, and it is with eager expectation. And some of you may have in your translations, earnest expectation. It is this Greek word, apokaradokio. Apokaradokio, and it's three Greek words that are put together to form this one word that means that eager expectation. The Greek word apo means from, kara means the head, and dokio means to look. And it's used to describe one like straining out their neck as far as they possibly can physically to to look ahead at something. There is a a fervency in that looking ahead. And that's why it's described as an eager or an earnest expectation. It speaks of an intense expectation and an earnest watching to strain forward and literally await with an outstretched head. The craning of the neck to catch a glimpse of what lies ahead, I I think of sometimes you look at a turtle coming out of its shell and they just stretch that neck out as far as they can uh, to look around and to look over things. So Paul has this eager or earnest expectation and hope. That is what he's looking ahead with. This hope is something that is founded not in just a hope that I hope it rains today, or I hope whatever my favorite sports team is wins the World Series or the, the Super Bowl or whatever that, that thing might be. But this is a hope that is rooted in the truth of God's Word. And what God has said and He has proven throughout Scripture is that His promises will come to pass. And it is a hope and something that is sure to happen. And Paul is looking at that with this earnest expectation, he's looking at it with this hope that is founded in the truth of Scripture, saying that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That is what he is expectantly with hope looking towards. And when someone has done no wrong, they shouldn't have any fear of being ashamed. You know, Paul, looking back at that mixed preaching that was going on about him, Um, He could have just been so tied up in the things that they were saying about him that he would just try to attack them back and say, well, the things that they are saying about me are untrue. And he might have even attacked their message, even though it was the true gospel, but he did not do that. He was looking at his own situation in Christ of not being ashamed. Paul understood that as a forgiven saint who has lived his life all out for God's glory, that there was no shame awaiting him. Peter encouraged his afflicted readers, reminding them in times of persecution and struggles. 1 Peter 4, 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. John, at the end of his first epistle, gives us this exhortation. John, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Paul is craning his neck out in a a God-rooted hope, looking to this time that he will not be ashamed, that he will be able to move forward with courage regardless. 
that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. This is a full courage. It was, it was well-rounded. It's, it's complete, and it's in contrast to being ashamed. Paul's not going to be ashamed, but rather he, ha- he will have full courage at this moment. Paul has already provided the reason for this full courage. We looked at the love of other believers and their prayers and the Holy Spirit indwelling him. He is being strengthened by all of these things and with his eyes fixed on the hope of heaven, his final deliverance, he is standing unashamed before his Lord. That is what he is envisioning here. Maybe that is that moment where he is hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's the end of verse 20. And then to verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's awaiting a trial, and he knew that he could either be released or he could be executed, but he trusted Christ to work it out for his deliverance and for his, and his glory. If the verdict were to gain him you know, exoneration, Christ would be glorified but if it was to go through martyrdom then Christ was to be glorified for me to live is Christ and to die is gain it's probably one of those verses that many of us have memorized might be even one that we have emblazoned on some kind of sign and you know mounted on our wall at home if we were to say though for us to live is Christ what would that mean for us? What does that mean for us? If we really are standing that, on that as a promise from Scripture, and if we insert ourselves in Paul's place, and I say, it is for me to live as Christ, then I sure better reflect that in the way that I live my life. We know that by God's Holy Spirit in us, we are in union with Christ. We, he is, in essence, our all in all. We sing that song, you are my strength when I am weak, you are the treasure that I seek, you are my all in all. We are joined in, we are unified with him like the branch that is grafted into the tree. We seek our source of everything from him as far as our spiritual nourishment goes. His life becomes our life. He is living within us. He is flowing through us. Paul writes in Romans six ten through 11, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. If by his grace we have been saved and we are truly saved, our heart has been changed, we have been regenerated and made new in him, we are indwelt by him and our life should be lived in him for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And the way we live this out in our daily lives should reveal that we live in union and fellowship with Christ. And if it isn't be lived out in our life, then we, that should give us cause for evaluation. It's time for a check. Are we communing with Him daily? Are we depending on Him for everything? Are we going to Him continually in prayer? Because there is a knowing of Christ that is described in Scripture as an intimate kind of knowing where we know Him, but He also knows us. Paul will say later in Philippians 3, 
I don't want to jump ahead in our study, but he says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. That is how identified Paul is in fellowship and union with his Lord and Savior. To live is Christ should be revealed in our growing to love Christ with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. I realize that when we're saved, we are not just picked up and planted at this state of perfection where I am living for Christ full on. It is a sanctification by the Holy Spirit, a growth process in the life of a believer. As Ray talked about last week, we had the we were able to enjoy the message because we looked at it on Facebook Live, but he talks about the mature levels that are described in First John where we're children, where we're young men, and then we become fathers. So there's always that place and that room for growing. But what is that pattern? What are we being marked by? Are we submitting all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, those pesky emotions, right? Are we submitting all of our words, all of our deeds to the Lordship of Christ so that I seek to please Him in all aspects of my life. I know that's challenging for me and it should be challenging for you as well because we all stumble. And so we understand that this is never fully realized in this life. I mean, even Paul would say here later on in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Those who are children of God, we're not perfect. There are still going to be struggles. There are still going to be temptations to sin. But if we have as our focus to live an experiential way, in an experiential way, the fact of our union with Christ so that He is our everything, that at the end of this life, we know that our gain is everything. Our eternal salvation, our getting to be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in eternity in heaven. So a little challenge for us as we close today, and this is a challenge, as I described earlier, just for me as well. How would you complete the following sentence? For me to live is blank. Those who are really competitive in sports might say for me to live is football, might say for me to live is baseball or basketball. Fortunately, I wasn't very skilled in either of those, so I don't think I, I really live for those things. But if you're really into your career, maybe it's for me to live a success, promotion, bonuses, bigger salary, more respect. If you are a parent, the word might be here, children, or it may be your spouse. For a politician, it might be for me to live is winning an election. Maybe if you are retired, it is just a general contentment of life. That's what you're looking for. For me to live, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's sex, maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it is, for me to live is, insert your own name, for me to live is Owen, worship of self. We often see this verse that, First, uh, John tags on at the end of his first epistle is something that's just haphazardly thrown in there, but it is, it is for purpose. It is critical that we understand that we are to keep yourselves from idols, and that idol can be whatever you replace, put in that blank. For me to live is, and the point is no one leaves that sentence blank. Everyone finishes it with something. If you don't fill the blank with Christ, what do you put there? Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you this morning and we just thank you that your word is like that two-edged sword that divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow and pierces to the division of the heart, God, and reveals some things to us about ourselves that it may hurt, um, it may challenge us, but God, just do what you will do with your word in our hearts and cause it just to take hold, to take effect, that we would be changed by it. For those of us who have been living a life after self or after other things, God, maybe we've come to know you in a saving way. Just help us to grow in that sanctification and that maturity of who you are and what you desire of us. And for one that doesn't know you, God, I pray that this impacts them in a saving way, that you would move on them by your grace, that you would draw them to you and that you would save them and that you would show them everything that you have done for them, God, by sending your perfect gift of grace, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. That they would come to you in confession and sincere repentance and just cry out to you for mercy, God, and that you would save them. We ask these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.